Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Um, it's a great problem to be violating the fire code to such a, a large degree, <laughs> and really delighted to welcome so many visitors to the University of Portland campus. Um, usually when you come, you can get a chair, but but not tonight, and I think that says a lot about our topic and about the, the network of support that, um, that exists in Portland among University of Portland, St. Andrew Parish, the Jesuit volunteer community, and the Jesuit, uh, Jesuit volunteers Northwest west and just lots of people who maybe saw a poster and they, and they came here so we're really glad you're here it's okay with me if you want to sit down on the ground and prop yourself up against the ceiling if the fire marshal comes by there are 80 of us in this room okay <laughs> got that one two three how many of us are there 80, 80. bravo good job my, okay. My name is Karen Eifler, and I co-direct the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture, along with my colleague, Father Charlie Gordon, and we are bi-locating tonight. He is at a uh, another Garaventa Center event elsewhere, where there's probably more chairs. If you are... Um, <laughs> If you are new to what we do here, I just want to make sure you know that there is a table full of our propaganda on the right outside the door. It has our calendar for the year. Lots of great things coming up. And um, if you're a teacher in a K-12 school, we offer for every one of our events uh, complimentary PDUs. And if you're a teacher, you know how cool that is and how necessary that is. And all you need to do is uh, give us your name and your email address in the school where you teach and those PDUs will be in your inbox tomorrow. If you would, if you like what you hear tonight, and I'm pretty sure you will, and you want to keep um, up on the fast-breaking Garavana Center story, we also have a sign-up sheet uh, there. And if you give us your email, we, we put out a newsletter once a month that keeps you on top of everything that we're doing. It also connects you to the podcasts of our, our events that we do. Just about everything that we do is available as a podcast, a downloadable podcast within a couple of days of the event. And um, so take advantage of those. All right. If you are a student who is here as part of a class, I will invite you to uh, to sign the credit sheet after Eileen's talk is over, and that will be available in the, the hallway. Did That should change in about eight seconds. And I also need to point out, thanks to our rock stars at the campus bookstore, we have copies of Eileen's book available for purchase over in the back. Shelby, you want to raise your hand? So she, she got here early, got a seat, and she's happy to, to sell you a book if you would like that. So welcome. And now I turn to an introduction of our guest tonight. The second chapter in the letter of St. James has the heavy message that faith without good works to accompany it is a dead thing. That applies perfectly to the woman whose life as a Mary Noel sister in El Salvador we're here tonight to learn about, but I think it applies equally well to Eileen Markey, who literally wrote the book on Sister Maura Clark. Eileen was formed by the Jesuits at Fordham University, where she completed a degree in urban studies, and that early formation followed through her graduate education in journalism at Columbia University. 
Eileen tells true stories that matter all the way through to their sometimes tragic conclusions. Her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Village Voice, and regularly these days in the um, journal America, among many others. In her writing and producing for national and local outlets such as New York Public Radio, she never lets her readers or listeners forget the human faces behind every statistic or the story of a man, a woman, or a child behind any bureaucratic report. Please help me welcome investigative journalist and woman of vibrant living faith, Eileen Markey, to the University of Portland. Thank you all for coming, and um, I will not be offended at all. In fact, it will make my back hurt less if you all sit on the floor, so don't <laughs> feel bad. You can sit. Um, thank you. It's really nice to be here, and it's nice to see so many people. Is this on? Can you hear me, people in the back? Okay. How about that? Good. Good. All right. So thank you, Karen, for bringing me here, and Karen's assistant, Sarah, who did really yeoman service to make me like do all the logistical things to be able to come here. Um, I'm really pleased to be able to speak at the Garavanta Center for Catholic Intellectual Life tonight. It's really excellent to be with people who live this faith and people who think about it, maybe people who are curious or frustrated with it. Um, this story is a really Catholic story. There's so much here in the story of Maura Clark that's universal, that's about the human quest for freedom and for dignity. But in its particulars, in its deep beauty, and in its horror, it's a Catholic story. So it makes sense that we're here at the Center for Catholic Intellectual Life to consider it. The pictures that you're looking at are just snapshots from different parts of Maura Clark's life. Um, many of them from her childhood, growing up in the 1940s in Queens, New York. Um, and then some from her time as a young nun in novitiate, and then her work in Nicaragua over the years. You can see the changes in nuns' work, right, as her, her costume changes. Um, I'm not really going to talk about the pictures, but there's something we can look at as we talk about these other ideas, so that this woman is real, right? She's this 12-year-old in, like, 1946. Um, I suspect that the story of the church women of El Salvador, Maura Clark, Edith Ford, Dorothy Kazel and Jean Donovan is a familiar one to many of you. Many of us grew up learning about the church women as modern martyrs, as examples of committed Christianity, as women who took seriously the gospel admonition to love your neighbor as yourself. The church women murders were a shock, but also a clarion call to many U.S. Catholics, and their lives continue to inspire and goad many of us. But for people who might be unfamiliar with them, a brief background. On December 2nd, 1980, four U.S. women, three of them Catholic nuns, were killed by the military government of El Salvador, a U.S. Cold War ally, a military that we trained and armed as part of our global Cold War maneuvering. The four women were stopped at a checkpoint set specifically for them outside of San Salvador. They were taken to a military base and tortured and then killed their bodies discarded by the roadside, and discovered the next morning by peasants in that area. Their murders were an international incident, setting off years of debate on U.S. policy in Central America. Surely we were backing the wrong side if we were training and arming nun killers, the argument went. 
their murders were talked about as unique, but they weren't unique. They weren't unusual. They were what was happening in El Salvador during those years. So I want to read a little bit from the beginning of the book, and then I'll explore the life that preceded this famous death and suggest how this story might be relevant for us today in the context of human rights, in the context of solidarity, in the context of resisting tyranny in our own day. The grave was fresh. The soil yielded easily to the shovels. It was no trouble, really, to uncover the bodies. They were piled one on top of the other, buried quickly the day before, under orders from the local military commander. In minutes, they were hoisted from the narrow ground and laid beside each other in a cow pasture. Their clothes were askew and their faces dirty, their hair matted with blood. Two of the women appeared to have been raped. A tigilote tree, its limbs reaching over the place where they lay, cast a little shade. The women had been missing a long day and a half. Now they were found. These killings weren't random. More than 8,000 people were killed in such a way in El Salvador in 1980 alone, the first year of a 12-year civil war that left 75,000 people dead. It's a very small country, so those numbers are a tremendous percentage. The killings weren't random. They were carried out by the country's National Guard, by the Army, by the National Police, by squads of citizens organized and trained by those military entities, and by groups of off-duty military men operating in clandestine brigades named for Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez, the right-wing dictator of their father's generation. <coughs> the people killed were members of farm worker unions and cooperatives, <coughs> nurses and doctors who gave trainings to poor people, students, teachers, people involved in the parish youth groups, catechism instructors, Bible study group members, people who came to talks like this. Indeed, anyone who questioned the economic and political system in El Salvador. There was a broad social movement that had been growing and gathering steam for 15 years, and the military government was engaged in a campaign to eradicate it. That's what was going on, and that's they are four of those 8,000 people who died that year. As central as the church women's story is to a certain class of Catholics and to people concerned with U.S. Cold War policy in Central America, we only ever knew these women as dead. It's as though they were born in that grave. And I think for people with a Catholic imagination, it, it resonates. It's we know death. We know all those medieval Renaissance paintings of bloody crucifixes. We know this story of sacrifice and death. And so it it fits into a part of our mind and our, our artistic memory, right? Um, but understanding them in this way relegates them to the role of victim, people upon whom something was acted. They are silent in that grave. An indictment, surely, but inert, helpless, maybe even hapless victims. In the years since their murder, the women have been shorn of context, their killing and the, their lives remembered as somehow distinct from the political reality of which they were a part their death somehow different than those other 8,000 Salvadorans who were murdered in the same way in the same year. I began this book because I wanted to understand who Maura Clark, the oldest, the most experienced missionary, the one who had spent the longest time in the pre-Vatican troop church, who she was before she was cut down. So a few answers. She was a threat. She was religious, of course, but she was political. 
She was part of a broad social movement for political and economic change, active in El Salvador, but also in Nicaragua and in the United States. She had long before chosen solidarity over charity. This was no do-gooder. She was bolstered by a deep inner life, habits of compassion and humility, a willingness to learn how her role was part of the whole, and by a radical, dangerous belief that everybody mattered. So how does a nice girl like her end up in a place like this? Maura was born in 1931, the oldest child of Irish immigrants in New York City. She grew up during the Depression and World War II, part of a wave of Irish becoming Americans in a parochial anti-communist church that argued that being a good American and a good Catholic could be intertwined. She walked under the words pro patria, pro deus, carved into limestone as she entered elementary school at St. Francis de Sales in Bell Harbor, Queens. She entered the Marianal Convent in 1950, one of a flood of young women attracted to the adventure and steely glamour that the Marianal sisters promised. That might seem a bit counterintuitive, particularly to the younger people in the room, but these weren't girls who were running away from something. They weren't looking for high walls in a life of, of abnegation. This was an opportunity um, to do something more with your life. For women, and particularly for blue-collar women, there, there wasn't college. Girls from her neighborhood didn't go to college. Girls from her neighborhood didn't go into the foreign service. There was no Peace Corps. You worked for the telephone company for a couple of years, and you married the guy down the block. Um, but if you wanted something different, if you wanted to bust out of those pretty restrictive gender roles, you became a nun. So the convent was full of the smartest girl in every class. Um, four of her best friends from high school became sisters of various orders. And the Marianals in particular were this missionary American order as opposed to an order founded in France in the 1200s, um, dedicated to foreign service. So it was full of all these girls who wanted to drive Jeeps and wanted to administer vaccines in foreign countries where people were suffering from unspeakable diseases. They wanted to learn foreign language and be in exotic in different places. There was an understanding that you had already a sense of your, your brother and sister around the world in you know various skin tones and various nationalities and various languages. A lot of how they spoke in those days would like make our set our teeth on edge, right? In in terms of a, a colonial mindset. But there was this idea that we're all brothers and sisters, even in 1913 when the order was founded, and even in 1950 when she joined. And there was very much this, I want to bury Marinol's sister because they're kind of ballsy. They're kind of awesome. I want to be brave like them. Um, it was one of the first like great surprises that I did my research interviewing all these little old ladies. Sister, why did you become a nun? And they're like, oh, come on. I wanted to get off the farm, right? Um, <laughs> Or more often, for Marianals, I out of the urban neighborhood. Um, so, Mora's first overseas mission in 1959 was in Ciuna, Nicaragua, a gold mining town, where the children were malnourished and the gold miners died of lung diseases, even as a multinational mining operation enriched itself with plain loads of gold each week. When I was in this town, uh, talking to people who are now in their 50s and 60s, they remembered being little boys and watching their fathers. It's, um, it's still a place you get to on like a 12-seater airplane, and there's not really a runway. There's just a, a strip out of the forest where the plane lands. Um, but they remember in those days when the mine was operating, a big cart like the size of a king-size bed 
with wooden cartwheels uh, piled high with gold, like something out of a cartoon, like bars of gold in a big pyramid glinting in the sun. And their father's shirtless, incredibly skinny and sinewy, pushing four or five men, pushing this heavy wooden pallet onto the plane and the door closing and the plane flying away. And that gold made many, many people rich, but it didn't make the Nicaraguans rich. They continued, the children had intestinal diseases and worms, the kids were always fainting in class because they were so anemic. The fathers had metal poisoning and lung illnesses. Um, so in the beginning, Mora and the other sisters, though scandalized by this poverty, kept to their tasks. They were brought there as teachers. They were supposed to run the school. And, and to run a health clinic, and to bring people closer to God, to teach them to be better Catholics, to offer an example of holiness. But while she was in Siuna, a couple of things happened. The Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council meeting in Rome, was thinking and developing this thinking that, um, that reordered the role of nuns in the world. No longer were they to be pious adornments, sanctifying, the world by virtue of their virtue, right? They were instead to be yeast in the dough of the laity, expanding, bubbling up within the church, that is the people of God, to form the kingdom of God that Jesus described. The church was beginning to teach the radical notion that God did not ordain the tremendous suffering of poor people. This was revolutionary. From the beginning of Christianity in Latin America, when priests rode behind the conquistadors, the church had been a crucial leg in the triumvirate of power. Landowners protected by the military, the social order justified by the church's appeals to heavenly reward. You might suffer now, but God will reward you in heaven. Your suffering is redemptive. The work of the church was to keep believers focused not on this life, but on the next. But that changed in the 1960s and 70s. The church or elements of it broke with the traditional power structure and sided with the mass of poor people to address the here and now. In 1964, responding to these instructions coming out of Vatican II, the Marianal Mission in Siuna began using an adult faith formation curriculum called Familia de Deus, Family of God. It was inspired by Paolo Fieri popular education methods and it dramatically reordered the relationship between teacher and student. Mora and the other sisters in Siuna began convening small groups of adults to work through a dialogue curriculum, which was based on Bible stories and the seven sacraments, to read aloud and to have these discussions, since most of the people were illiterate. Baptism is initiation into the family of God, they taught. What does it mean to be God's family? What does a loving parent want for their children? Am I my brother's keeper? It progresses through to confirmation. What's the responsibility of a Christian? You can see where this is going. People who had ever been treated as subjects are asked what they think. They're asked to analyze these Bible stories that they've half heard all of their lives and to apply them and analyze them from their own experience. So what does the miracle of the loaves and fishes mean to a Nicaraguan woman who has to stretch her masa to feed her husband parents, several children. The speaking together, the thinking together is powerful. It establishes a level of community and a degree of shared purpose that hadn't existed before, at least in this place, this gold mining place. These encounters with the parents of her school students 
In these encounters, Mora was a listener, a facilitator, a person who asked questions and drew out understanding, not an authority with the answers, right? In the classroom, she's declining verbs and teaching at the front of the classroom, but at night, she's sitting on people's dirt floors in their little wooden shacks asking questions and listening to answers. Mora moved from the white North American U.S. missionary with the answers here to instruct the Nicaraguans to a sister, a partner. She's changing sides. She's a fellow member of the people of God, striving to build a society worthy of God's children. Surely, children of God, the family of God, shouldn't be dying of lung diseases and metal poisoning to enrich foreigners. Surely, the children of God shouldn't be beaten by the National Guard or tortured by the dictator's special squads when they had the temerity to ask for higher wages. Let me read you a little bit about kind of how this theology almost is changing. The concept of church as the family of God meant that people had a responsibility to care for their neighbors. It also meant that they had rights. They were God's beloved family. God wanted good things for them, not suffering. Mora found the ferment, the connections formed between previously suspicious neighbors, inspiring. The people in the Pueblos are beginning to unite and to make their voices heard. Siuna has been abandoned for so long, but there's an awakening of hope. She wrote to her sister after several of these Family of God curriculums were up and going. When Mora set out for Nicaragua in 1959, she thought she was going to bring Christianity to the people of Siuna. But living in Siuna, she learned that God was already there. What the sisters had to do, she realized, was listen to the people they were serving, to understand how the world worked from their perspective at the bottom. The shift meant casting off the role of savior. Instead of working for poor people, Mora would work with poor people. It was, in effect, an act of changing sides. As she embraced the new role, Mora saw more and more keenly the injustices people were subject to, the effects of low wages, the lung illnesses and metal poisoning, the arrest for failing to kowtow to the National Guard, the alcoholism and family violence that sprang from hopelessness. If this was the body of Christ, it was being tortured. So, Mora, we haven't really talked about her personality, but she's this incredibly warm, self-effacing, really, really dulce, really, really sweet woman, um, who everyone I spoke to, really like everyone I spoke to who knew her personally, said she had this unbelievable ability to connect, to pay attention. When she talked to you, you felt like you were the only person in the world, you had her full attention, and you were some sort of beautiful creature who was worthy of everything, right? This was the gift she had from when she was a teenager, uh, working an after-school job in a gift shop to when she's doing this adult education in the 60s to when she's working with campesino mem- you know, labor union members uh, at the end of her life. So she has this innate ability that she was able to combine this way of being herself, right, this way of connecting and noticing with the new work that she was asked to do. This new way of teaching meant listening, sitting in the people's houses on their floor and beginning to understand life there. It's transformative. It's radicalizing. She couldn't unsee what she saw. This is an important aspect of Mora's character. She was honest. She didn't lie to herself about the conditions that people lived in. Mora's response to tyranny was solidarity. She was becoming Nicaraguan, taking the side of the people getting their teeth kicked in, walking step by step away from the exceptionalism and the comfortable innocence of being an American. 
By the end of the 1960s, the Marinol mission left Siuna, this gold mining town, to embrace new work in the slums of Managua and the shanty towns that surrounded the city. Here, Mora would be essentially a community organizer, establishing groups of faithful into cells to study and pray and work together as these base Christian communities, small faith communities. The work was pastoral. It was about bringing people into closer relationship with each other and closer relationship with church and with God, but it was unavoidably political. To gather poor people together to analyze their current society against the standard promised by Christ is political, and it's dangerous. As members of these new base Christian communities moved from prayer meetings to marching for the release of political prisoners and demanding a fair distribution of the fruits of the earth or a fair distribution of the millions of, international, millions of dollars in international relief that flowed into Nicaragua after an earthquake in 1972, the Somoza dictatorship recognized these new groups of Christians talking and praying and marching for the grave threat that they were. This was opposition to Caesar. This was dangerous. The majority of Nicaraguans suffered tyranny, and Mora stood beside them, threw in her lot with people she had grown to love. Opposing tyranny, this is important, out of a deep and sober belief in love. In the mid-1970s, Mora and fellow Marinol sisters lived in a displaced persons encampment outside of Managua. It was called Open Three, and it was miserable. A collection of cast-off people, shaken from their rural homes by drought and insecure land rights, moved from a squatter settlement in downtown Managua by a rising lake and an earthquake, they were sent to this desiccated former cotton plantation, a dusty, sun-baked sprawl of tarps and cardboard. Mora and the other sisters continued their subversive work, telling poor people that they mattered. The base Christian communities in Open, tray, open Trays became part of the resistance to Samosa, to the dictator, overlapping with and in common cause with the emerging Sandinista movement. This is what Mora did during her last years in Nicaragua. Organize citizens to demand a bus route, march for a fair price for water, sit in dialogue masses with Fernando Cardinal, while the private school kids who would become the leaders of the revolution and the street kids of open trays hashed out what it meant to love one's neighbor, to lay down one's life for one's friend. It was religious, and it was political. In 1980, she accepted a call um, issued by Archbishop Romero. All of this stuff had happened in the 70s, and then she's back in the U.S. for a little bit of time, and then she's, like, ready for her next assignment. And it was, would I go back to Nicaragua, or will I go to El Salvador? Archbishop Oscar Romero is asking for more Marinol sisters to come to El Salvador. And as bad as things were in Nicaragua, they were far, far worse in El Salvador, and the, the campaign of counterinsurgency and, and eradication of dissent was, you know, was very ramped up, was, was really moving by then. Um, Archbishop Romero himself was assassinated while celebrating Mass in March of 1980. But in January, he'd written to the Marinol sisters and said, you guys do a really good job of working with poor people. You do a really good job of building community and of building dignity. We need more of you in this country that's going through this nightmare. So she spent a long time thinking about it and eventually decided, all right, I think I need to go to El Salvador. I need to try to do this work there. Um, if Moore's politicization and shift in work had been a gradual evolution in Nicaragua, really over 15 years, in El Salvador she was stepping into a fully formed nightmare. The country was in tumult 
over a movement for social, political, and economics rights that was met not with petulant tweets, but with a campaign of murder, right? How many people went to the Women's March? A Women's March. Or how many people went to the airport when the refugee ban came in, the Muslim ban, right? That you didn't get, oh, you people don't understand, life is more complicated than you silly liberals think. That you got, they came and they killed your mother, right? Um, in her brief time in El Salvador, Moro worked for a few agencies of the archdiocese. She documented human rights abuses for Socorro Juridico, legal aid, uh, legal aid arm established by Romero before his murder. She distributed food and clothing under the auspices of the social secretariat, something like Catholic Relief Services, or something more like Catholic Charities, um, to people that the government had marked for death, right? And she hid people fleeing the death squads in the back of a jeep and ferried them past the national police checkpoints to the makeshift refugee centers that the colonial church properties in San Salvador had been transformed into. I spoke to people when I was in El Salvador who said, I'm alive today, because when the death squad came for me, we fled to the convent's not really the right word. We fled to the little house where the sisters lived, and they sheltered us. And then Mora and Ita said, get in the back of this Jeep. We're going to cover you with a tarp. And we get to the checkpoints, be very, very quiet. And they worked in this part of the country in the north, and were getting people to the capital, where all these beautiful properties had been turned into refugee centers, unofficial, but slightly safer centers to live in. And they passed maybe 10 or 15 national police checkpoints, and it was a counterinsurgency campaign. Our, our people who perfected these techniques in Vietnam were now the advisors to the Central Americans on how to, how to fight a counterinsurgency, right? And a big policy was get rid of anybody who's sympathetic. Um, so these checkpoints were looking for these people. Um, and this woman, Aida, I spoke to said, they said, be so quiet. And then as we would pull away from each checkpoint, we would sing. Another part of their work was delivering food and clothing to people and medicine and medical treatment to people who were on the run, subsistence farmers who had had to leave their homes um, because they were wanted, because their son was in the student movement or their daughter was a catechism instructor. And so they were unable to harvest, right? They were unable to harvest that fall. Uh, Edith Ford talked about her fear of famine in the summer of 1980. And so they were delivering very, like, CRS-type work, 50-pound bags of beans and rice to people who were in these encampments in the, in the woods. Um, the repression in Nicaragua was bad, but El Salvador was an unfolding horror. Here the church was not the Pauline body of Christ with many parts, as it had been in her early years in Nicaragua, her mid-years in Nicaragua. In El Salvador, the church is the crucified Christ. <coughs> the church has transformed itself from a leg of that three-sided power structure to an object of government wrath. To be a Christian, even in a country that was all but 100% Catholic back then, is to be subversive. So why were they killed? Why were they worth killing? <coughs> I use the word assassination in the title of the book very deliberately. They were worth killing. They were subversive. They believed that everyone mattered, that everyone deserved, was born with certain fundamental rights, that as children of God, they deserved not suffering, but joy. One of the young men that Mora worked with, Mora and Ito worked with in Charlottetonango in 1980, described them to me as Salvadoran. 
they adopted the love and horror of his country. They became part of the people they loved. So what does it mean for us? Why are we still talking about this woman 37 years after her murder? Why is she worth considering? I'd venture that at any time, but particularly in times that feel dark and threatening, we need heroes. We need models of how to be. I think many of us feel frightened and lonely and lost, maybe, in a country that feels newly unfamiliar. But there is strength, both theological and spiritual, and actual strength in being together, in joining, in being with neighbors, in going to the meeting, in finding the group. <coughs> Tyranny needs frightened and disorganized people. More is work connecting neighbors, connecting this deep, ineffable belief in God to the material conditions of life had power. That's what was dangerous. That's what made her and the work that the church was doing those days more dangerous than the Marxist and communist organizers who they liked and respected and worked with, right? Like, that's one thing, and it has its own power. But this was connecting that to, to this thing that your parents and your grandparents and that you've <coughs> worshipped on your knees, right? This had great power. The first obstacle veterans of the Latin America justice campaigns have told me, the most difficult obstacle for them to overcome, whether in Chile or in El Salvador or in Nicaragua, was resignation. The fatalism of people conditioned to accept injustice as their lot. So let me just finish with kind of how the book finishes. Um, <coughs> what matters in the end is that Mora thought everyone mattered. It remains a radically countercultural belief. Her death was treated as something different from the festival of killing that engulfed the poor of El Salvador in those years. But in the end, Mora's death was no different than the death of tens of thousands of others, of people in El Salvador who yearned to be treated as humans. She spent her life connecting, reaching out, sometimes desperately hoping to find acknowledgement of herself and her own worth by paying intense attention to people the world dictated did not matter. In her death, she connected. Her death was treated as something different, a break from the norm, something unique that called out for justice and accounting. But it was but one of nearly 10,000 in that year in that country alone. If everybody matters, if the women she worked with in the slums of Managua and the terrorized campesinos in the villages of El Salvador are worthy of dignity, worthy of their quest to be treated as humans, and the social order that made them poor worth pushing off, Mora's death is not unique. The minister of the minister of the military and the head of the National Guard and the local commander in the villages where she worked considered her subversive. They might have been right. Maura Clark was subversive. This was her subversion. She had connected. talk over the lump in your throat, Eileen has agreed to take a few questions and we'll happily entertain questions from students and from community members. Yes. How long did you spend writing the book? When was it published? Because its timing now is mind-blowing. Right. 
Um, I spent five years on the book. It was published. It came out on Election Day last year. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so we spoke about uh, beginning of our time together about uh, the church's role in this triumvirate of power, yeah. uh, supporting the, the power of uh, a community. And so I'm wondering uh, what you saw in, in your research on how the church responded. Um, I, you, you gave a a thorough explanation of the local church's right. response, of the Mary Mill Sisters' response uh, to this what, what was the regional church's response, and what was the, uh, the church in Rome's response? Right. So the church in El Salvador was knee-deep in this movement, right, was animating this movement, was sheltering people, was providing the material support that Mora provided, um, had already lost its archbishop, had lost dozens of priests, and more importantly, had lost, like, tons of parishioners, right, the, the people of El Salvador. Um, so they were, they were all in, um, and, and continued to be, and, you know, later on, a couple of years later, all these Jesuit priests are assassinated for their work at a kind of higher level, um, the church in the United States responded very uh, directly and strongly. Uh, there were masses at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., at St. Patrick's in New York, at the big cathedral in Chicago, I'm sure at parishes out here. Bishops, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, had already been really involved in work in El Salvador, had already been going on fact-finding missions and human rights documenting re trips and writing reports for years. Um, and so responded to this with, you know, condemnation and, and you know, it's in the CCD books my kids get in their very run-of-the-mill parishes. Um, I honestly didn't research what the Pope said about it. I had spent so much time on this story kind of zooming in on her, right, because I'm telling the story of, like, anti-imperialism and the Cold War and social movements in three different countries, and I tried to keep a spotlight on this woman as a way to tell all these other stories. And so I, I didn't, like, see what what Rome said. Later on, a couple years later, um, the Pope at the time, Pope John Paul II, really condemned liberation theology, which is what she was living, right? Um, and ostracized and silenced and made not available to teach a lot of Latin American liberation theologians that this Pope is now, like, rehabilitating those people and bringing them back into the canon. Um, but I honestly don't know what they said then. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about how she was regarded by by other folks, her personality and yeah. and um, her warmth towards others, um, and her subversive her you know subversiveness by the authorities. Can you share what you learned about her um, her self perception, her own yeah. confidence, and her her maybe her growth and faith? Yeah. She was a really insecure person. She was the adult child of an alcoholic. She was the oldest child. And um, and she never felt like she measured up. She never felt like she did enough. She never felt like she was good enough. She kind of drove her really close friends a little crazy by needing affirmation, um, by needing total approval for whatever she was going to do in terms of little things, right? I think I'm going to take a break and go home to visit my parents. Is that do you is that a good idea? I think I think that's what I'm gonna do. Is that do you think that's all right? Uh, and they're like, actually it's inconvenient, but like we're not your boss, you can go. Oh really? But maybe I shouldn't, you know? Um she writes a lot 
I don't have a ton of her diaries. She's sort of maddeningly was very other focused. So her letters are always talking about other people. Um, but what I do have, there's this great <laughs> feeling of not measuring up and not being smart enough and not being good enough. Um, but what you see, you know, these women did really deep work, right? Like, uh, psychological work and spiritual work with themselves and she always lived in community with other women she knew really really well and really really deeply um and so you see through the 70s her being able to turn and even earlier in her life being able to turn that need and sort of wound within herself into something that she turns outward to other people right so i spoke to her spiritual director who said she talked to her a lot even in the last year of her life about well, you're focused so much on other people because you need the acknowledgement. You're, you're mirroring. That's what you're doing. Um, I think it's a really beautiful way to turn that need, right? Not into being like a suck on people, <laughs> but into being, all right, I, I, I focus outward. I focus on what I can do with others. Um, and that's why I think the, the way that people in El Salvador speak of her as having become Salvadoran is like a great accomplishment, right? She, she got over that barrier. She, she made it. She got to, to convergence with other people. Yeah. yeah. Well, El Salvador is still one of the most violent places in the world, but what happened after 1980? Yeah, so after 1980, the Civil War goes on. It continues until 1992. Uh, the United States was a stalwart supporter of this military regime until the end, until 1982. Uh, we suspended military aid for two weeks after the murder of these four American citizens, and then we resumed it. Uh, that was under Carter. No, that was under Carter. Um, and then Reagan took office, and he didn't even pretend to care about human rights, right? So we really went all guns in. Um, the war ends in 1992, and it's this post-conflict society. It's a completely destroyed society, right? The government broken, civil structures totally broken up, people dislocated, the country awash in guns, the country awash in young wounded men and young wounded women. By the end of the war, 30% of the combatants were women. Um, that's 1992. In 1996, we begin flooding El Salvador with 1980s-style Los Angeles gang members. Um, because many Salvadorans had fled the war, right? Their parents had fled the war throughout the 80s, ended up in L.A. as poor people in L.A. in the 80s. Some of their kids got involved in crime and violence. Um, some of those kids became gang members and ended up in, in California prisons. Um, and then when Bill Clinton signs the 1996 Immigration Reform Act, which you might remember marching against, um, it meant any of those two-year-olds who came to L.A. when they were two and ended up gang members after they finished their sentence were deported back to this country of their parents. A petri dish for violence, right? Just like a vector for the disease of violence. So the country is now very, very violent. It's not um, right versus Marxists anymore, and it's not this campaign of eradication. It's gang members and, and uh, a drug economy to fuel our drug addictions. Um, so we kind of keep giving to El Salvador. Yeah. We can take one more question. Okay, two. Okay, two. <laughs> and, that's it. and that's it. Okay. Um, well, just to, just to build on what you were just talking about, um, I lived in Honduras in the, in the late 70s, so that was all a part of my consciousness. And then 
it, five years ago, in 2012, I went to El Salvador to help um, monitor elections. And a lot of the solidarity work that was done between the U.S. and Salvadorans at that time continues today through a couple of different organizations. And so one is, first of all, <laughs> there's the opportunity to continue to go to El Salvador and monitor elections. And there's elections coming up next mm -hmm. March. Nice. And so if people are interested, I can give you information yeah. about that. Um, but it was interesting to me to kind of go 30 years after the war and sort of see what had changed and what hadn't and how um, I monitored elections there and also in, in Honduras and uh, in El Salvador it was much more people were getting along. People that had been yeah. killing each other 30 years before were getting along and participating in the elections yeah. together. Yeah. Um, but there's also the case that the the human rights organization that she worked for has been shut down by the yes. um, Catholic Church right, <laughs> in right. this area now. Because so it, so yeah. there does continue to be a lot of struggles there. But yeah. there's still a way to go and be a part of, I mean, as, yeah. as sort of... And what I talk about I mean, a little bit in the end of the book is that, you know, um, during the war all these people fled, many in refugee camps in Honduras, and then towards the end of the war, went back to El Salvador, and they, they took land, Toma, they, they took land and set up these intentional... Uh, organized communities, the whole country's like all like an egg beater, like no one's in the place where their grandparents were, right? Nobody's in the right town anymore. But they've, in many communities, have replanted these new communities built on democratic values, built on human rights, built on a really carefully articulated rights of women. Um, and in those places, beautiful and amazing things happen. And also, notably, in those organized communities, these left communities, there's not the gang violence um, because these are communities of people who know each other, have traveled together, have struggled together, and have an idea of what they want their society to be. These are the people that they didn't get, right? These are the people who survived. Um, and so there's the, the, it's like we can't pretend that it's not a really violent country. It really is. It's, it's more, it's as dangerous to be a young man in El Salvador today as it was in 1980. Um, but there's also really amazing, hopeful, and good things happening among people who never stopped, right? You think of, like, us, right? We've had one year, right? We've had one year of this. <laughs> These people just kept going and going and going, and they go to the next protest, and they go to the next struggle, and they find the next response, and they find the next thing that they do 30, 40 years on. Yeah. You wanted to yeah, say something? Yeah, I just something? wanted to thank you as a Central American myself. Yeah. Uh, the perspective of the United States and the, uh, the power of that influence on what has happened and continues to happen in Central America. Yes. Not, it's not a coincidence. It's not just, it just happened. No, no, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, before we stop, can I make a blatant pitch? If you've read this book, please go to Amazon and write a review of this book, even if it's one sentence, even if it's negative. Um, the algorithms that control our lives determine that the more book reviews a book has, the more likely it is to pop up when you do a search for the book. So if you type in liberation theology or Catholicism or uh, you know, Marxist revolution, I want this book to be one of the books that you're suggested, right? And if I have more reviews, even if they're very brief and even if they're negative, it, it will become a more visible book. This is part of the way. The math majors control things. Um, the, the other thing is that um, 
It's in a lot of public libraries. I'm pretty sure it's in the Multnomah Public Library. It's in a lot of university libraries. If it's not your library, you can ask for it. Um, and it's on Audible, and it's an ebook, and it's on IndieBound, and it's on Powell's. There you go. <laughs> I learned tonight that um, gathering together to listen and talk and explore ideas that matter is a really powerful way to be subversive, and the Garabena Center wants to be your partners in subversivity. So grab our calendar, and we hope to see you again soon. We've got books for sale, sign-ups, and all the places I told you. Have a great evening, and thanks for coming out tonight. <laughs>